Uh, we're starting a new series today, and the series is, um, is, is, is called From the Brink. And what does it look like for you to kind of be on the brink of something? Now, uh, being on the brink means that, well, some of you get really um, concerned when I get about right here. Because uh, he's like, he's, he's about to fall, right? And so uh, that's kind of on the brink of falling. But what is it like when we're on, our life is on the brink of something? It's either on the brink of success or the brink of failure or the brink of, of a new crisis or just, just being different, right? Anytime that there's change or something going on, we struggle in it at times. But I want you to think back, and as we begin this morning, I want you to think back to when you were a kid. For some of us, it wasn't that long. For some of us, it was a long time, right? But when you were a kid, what did you imagine yourself to be as a much older person? Think back to maybe when you were in first grade, when you were, when you were thinking about, what am I going to do when I grow up? Because that's one of the first things that you answer any time that you start a school year. is like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, of course, I want to be an astronaut, of course, I want to be a garbage truck driver. You know, I, I mean, we have all of these things that we just think are the most amazing things. And, and what are the characteristics? Because to be honest, you didn't think about a whole ton of different characteristics of a person that you would be when you were older. You thought about some of the traits, some of the things that you thought would be really cool. Um, and when you figured out uh, what the characteristics of this 30-year-old right, this really old person was going to be, what constitutes old? As we get older, though, I want you to know it continues to get up there, right? And so, in my opinion, 70's looking pretty young. <laughs> but what are the traits that you admired? What are the traits that you admired when the first grade you? And when you think about that, think back, what was it? It was like, listen, when I get really old, when I get to be 30, I'm going to play video games as much as I want. Mm -hmm. And no one's going to make me clean my room. And I don't have to eat my vegetables. And I can drive, right? Turns out when you get married, you can't do any of those things. But as we get older, the list of things that we think are important, it just changes. It changes. The chances are the things that you think are important now as you've gotten older are things like, listen, when I get older, when I become an adult, when I get to that place where people depend on me, I hope that I have strength. Not physical strength. Well, that's kind of cool. But I hope I have resolve. I hope I have the stick to itness to go through life. And I hope that, that in that strength that I don't fail to have compassion, that I, can, that I can look on the needs of others and have compassion, that I could be wise. Oh, that I could be wise. And that I could be kind. Now, of course, we're going to throw in the other things like being rich and famous and, and all of that other stuff. But the people that you enjoy being around, the people that you want to be with the most. They're the people that fill you with hope, the people that fill you with encouragement. Because you know the people on the other side of the happy scale. You know them. They're the ones that are bitter. 
the ones that are so absolutely hard to please. They're the ones that are so easily angered. Well, they're otherwise just crusty people. So when you were small, you didn't say, when I grow up, when I grow up and can be an adult and do anything I want to do, I hope that I become bitter, angry, and judgmental, just like Auntie Gertrude, right? You, you don't do that. You're not thinking that way. So what is it then that takes a child's life that looks to the future with hope, with this desire to see things go well, thinking that we're going to be the person that everybody wants to be around. We may not be famous, but people will like us. What is it that takes a child's life that's full of wonder and awe? And decades later, it changes. In other words, how do we become cynical and bitter? Now, cynical, that's a word that we don't use a whole lot, but it's basically an attitude of distrust, a distrust of, uh, towards the ethical and social values and the rejection of the need to be socially involved. So basically, I don't care what you think, I only care what I think. I don't care to be involved in what you got going on because I'm fine alone and by myself, right? It's the pessimistic, it's the pessimistic, being pessimistic about the capacity of others to make correct choices, to correct, make correct ethical choices. It's why when you get in a conversation with people who are cynical and they happen to get political, oh my goodness, you want to walk out the door, right? In short, people, people are only out for themselves when they become cynical, they're only out for the things that they want, the things that they need, and they focus only on what makes them feel comfortable. So when things don't work out, when they don't work out well, we just say, you know what, people, they're horrible. People are not good. And when we get in this position where we are cynical and bitter about life, what do we call ourselves? I'm a realist, right? The world's bad. It's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm just being real. If you want to look and think that everything's rosy and everything's going to turn out all right, well, you can just live in your little dream because I live in the real world. If that statement hurts, there's help, Okay. So how does cynicism, how does bitterness take root in our lives? How does it take root? It, it comes in, in this kind of form. It comes with one failed relationship after another. It comes with this didn't work out and, and this person uh, didn't turn out to be a true friend and, and these relationships just fail one after the other. I've been lied to. I've been betrayed. People have not come through in the places that I need them to come through. And obstacles continue to mount. They continue to mount. You know, all I'm trying to do is make myself better. But I run into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, and it seems that nothing is going to work. My life, you know, no matter what happens, I'm on the ropes again. And if you get knocked down enough, 
You get to the point where you say, if you can't beat them, join them. And you begin to see the worst in people day in and day out. Your home life starts to shatter and crumble around. Some people, to cope with this, they land into this life of addiction. They pursue a life of violence, trying to control things around them. They watch people go through life, and they just say, you know what? They're just not worth it. And in short, we basically get to the point where we don't believe the best in people anymore. Are you there? Have you been there? You've been told that it's not going to work so many times. You begin to believe it. The world and this message can be depressing, right? People can be disheartening. We can come into this place where we get to the horrible realization, this horrible realization that things aren't working. And then we feel it in ourselves and we began to have feelings of bitterness. And we look at the actions of others and we begin to look at what they're doing and think that they aren't going to do anything for our good, for their good. But here's the thing. Cynicism doesn't just grow up in people. It takes root in you. Optimism turns to realism. Realism becomes cynicism. And if you don't mind, I, I want to share with you, I want to share with you about what it looked like in me. About the time that I almost gave up on ministry. I was pretty young uh, in my, gosh, I guess I was in my 20s. And I got at this brand new place of ministry, went to the very first staff meeting. The very first words out of the mouth of the senior pastor is that every single one of you in here are replaceable. Okay. And we, we sit through and we understand that, that no matter what we do, we're not going to do it well enough and we're all replaceable. And these goals that we want, we're going to set them one week, then we'll change them the next. They're always a moving target. You add that in with a person that has questionable character, that when you're alone with them in a room, they start talking about things that you're like, can a pastor talk about these things? And we chased after the latest trends. We chased after the latest things that were going to make everything work right. And in the, in the result of that was that we set unrealistic goals. There were goals set for me that I could never meet. And do you know what happened inside of me? I became a person who dreaded getting up in the morning, who wanted to do anything but go to work, and found myself questioning my own worth. Have you been there? I question my intelligence. I question whether I had heard God when he called me to do the work of the ministry. And do you know what I did? I tried. I tried harder. I tried so much harder, and I worked so long, so late. I poured everything that I had in pushing uh, something up the hill that wasn't going to move. 
I dealt with the internal questioning, with the, with the why. Why is it this way, and why can't I get it right? Trying to do it right is futile. It's pointless. Bottom line, guys, I was hurt. I was deflated, and I was at a point where I didn't want to do it anymore. So what do you do? What do you do? What do you do when you feel like you can't trust anyone in leadership? What do you do when you feel like you work as hard as you can, but you go home defeated and utterly wounded, but not just simply wounded, but rocked into the core, and you try harder, but in the end, you just get burned? That's how cynicism starts. And it begins because, not because you don't care. It begins because you care a whole lot. When you pour your heart, your soul, and your life into something and you get the opposite of what you expected. When you give a lot and you get very little. And it happens. But why? Why does this happen? Now, the, the great thing about all of these things that we experience in our life is that there's always an example that you can turn to in the Scripture. Now, there's this guy in the Scripture, his name is Solomon, and he was the son of King David. He was the son of, of David and Bathsheba, and, and, and Solomon was the one that we remember he was called the wisest man because when he was given a choice between uh, riches and wisdom, he chose wisdom, and he got both, and we're like, yes, that's what I want. I'm going to tell God I want wisdom so I can get both. But Solomon, as he grew up and as he continued to be king and as he claimed all the things that a king could claim, he claimed marriages, he claimed money, he claimed territory and buildings and stuff, and he piled it up. And then Solomon, at the end of his days, began to get this really grim look at the world. And here's what he said about it in Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Hey, this is a good start, right? Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. All right, you guys have a good day. So how, how did he get here? He had everything that he wanted. He had the kingdom. He had the money. He had the fame. He had the people. He had everyone doing anything that he wanted to do. He had seen so much. But here's the problem, he'd seen so much. And he's the wisest person that ever lived, right? But he knew too much. And strangely, knowing too much about a person, it makes you sad. Because when you know too much, when the curtain is pulled back, when you have to, to, to walk in and understand there's a few chinks in the armor, we find ourselves on the path to heartbreak, selfishness. When we figure out that, that the life isn't going to turn out the way that we want it to or that we thought it would, and when we figure out, you know what, as much as I had thought this was the case, not everybody gets a trophy. Not everybody gets a participation ribbon. 
My parents didn't tell me that I would fail at some things. And this is why cynicism and old age are often companions. Because this grows over time. We bring the baggage from the past into our present. Every day we wake up, we have a choice whether we're going to put on the backpack of of hurt and disappointment and carry it with us into this day. For most of us, though, we don't even think about it anymore because we sleep with it in our bed, right? We're like, oh, if I don't feel disappointed and crushed, I really can't go to sleep tonight. Our hurts, our failures, we automatically apply them to a brand new position. We automatically apply them to a brand new situation into that new relationship. You know that one that we had that didn't work out well? Well, I'm going to take every bit of me that messed that thing up and I'm going to put it right back into the next one, right? But what do we do? We decide that, you know what, I'm going to just protect myself then. I'm going to build a fortress. I'm going to build these, this perimeter. I'm going to build this perimeter so I can protect myself, Right? Well, we think we're protecting ourselves. So I put this perimeter, this boundary up, and that perimeter then becomes a fence. Then my fence becomes a wall. And that wall is really not enough, so I'm going to put a moat around it. Add a little bit of razor wire just for good measure. Because we said, I am not going to let it happen again. I won't let it happen again. It's not going to happen again. No way. And you're constantly then looking, searching, looking for problems, looking for threats, looking for the things that you said, you know what, that's not going to happen anymore. And we stop looking to the horizon with hope, and we look to the horizon to see what's going to come next. Over time, our heart becomes hard. And then we decide that it's best to stop believing. We have walls for protection. And we push away others. We push away trust. We push away hope. We push away belief. Because we look for the wheels to fall off in every situation. We search for conflict and find it. We look for the impact of others' poor decisions and feel them. We decide, we decide that we don't need people. The funny thing about the decision to say that you don't need people is that when you decide that you don't need people, you very much then decide that you're going to close yourself off from God. So by the time you've reached your golden years, we've placed ourselves firmly on one side of the spectrum or the other. Either we're happy and grateful or we're crotchety and bitter. I'll let you decide which one you're becoming. And I'm not going to enter in that discussion with anyone, okay? (laughs) Because the older we get, the less pliable we become. Not only physically, you know, you wake up, you're like, oh gosh, that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But there's this war going on inside of our hearts, the one that's a war for hope and the other one for cynicism. There's this battle raging inside of us and we don't know which one's going to win. But whichever one does win, it wins our heart and it begins to solidify around it. 
I believe that bitterness is a choice and that we can do something about it. Life doesn't make you a cynic. Life doesn't make you bitter. You do. Now, it's not always a conscious move. It's not always something, you know, uh, hey, you know what, today I hope I'd become more crotchety. I'm going to practice, hey, get off my lawn. <laughs> That's great. Get a little more throaty next time, maybe. It's a choice that we make. We make that choice. And sometimes we don't know that we're making it. I want to look at another description of, of being a cynic in the Bible. Now, it's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it's, um, and it's just after Jesus had been baptized, he was going about, and, and the first two um, disciples that he had called, Andrew and Peter, are there, and he calls Andrew, come follow me, and Andrew followed, he grabbed his brother Peter, and they began to follow Jesus. So the next day, John chapter 1, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So they were kind of like from the same city. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, hey, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Before we pass over that, have you ever been in that situation where like, really, can anything good come from that situation? I've been to Nazareth, and he says, I've heard of and I've dealt with these people from Nazareth. These Nazarenes, they are no good news, right? Not, not that it's, there's a lot, lot of good that will come from this anyway, but have you ever had that said the same thing about Christians? Have you ever had that said of you? The church? <laughs> Can anything good come from the church? But Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming and toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. And I tell you what, if you tell that to me, I'll be like, oh my goodness, how are you being so nice to me? Nathaniel, this is what he's saying. Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, you are knowledgeable. You're knowledgeable. You are looking, you're searching, you're, you're looking for the Messiah. You are a true Israelite. Nathaniel, you are a man who will not be fooled because the Jews had been looking for Jesus, looking for the Messiah. So when Jesus called him a man in whom there is no deceit, he alluded to something in the Old Testament about Jacob. Now, now Jacob, in his beginning of his life, he, um, you know, he was the one that, that came out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel, that one, right? But he was shrewd. He was a smooth operator. He practiced in a little bit of deceit and got a little bit of wealth from it, right? One day he encountered God. And he wrestled. And Jacob became Israel. And Nathanael then said to Jesus, excuse me, how do you know me? Or how do you know me? Yeah, who knows how it goes. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, 
when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus mentions this fig tree not because it's just this really great parlor trick, because the, the fig tree is a place of comfort, and it's also an image describing the coming kingdom of God. Zechariah says this, In that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The faithful Israelites would sit under the fig tree as a symbol of their hopeful expectation that the Messiah would come. It is the part of a devout Jew that's looking forward to the Messiah, that's looking out on the horizon for hope. Jesus used these two things to answer the cynic's question in Nathaniel's heart. He says, in effect, I know, I know what's on your heart. I know that you're looking for Messiah. If you want God's kingdom restored, I know that's what you want in your heart. There was no real high-pressure sales pitch to Nathaniel. There was no, hey, uh, come and hang out with us. If you don't like what I got to say, you can go on. There's no big sales pitch. No, try before you die, or buy, or die. And he spoke directly to this place, though, that was hardening in Nathaniel's heart. Nathaniel answered him. There were no games. There were no gimmicks. Nathaniel answered with a simple response of faith and joy. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The hope that was on the horizon broke through the hardening heart of the cynic Nathaniel. And Jesus, Jesus then would begin to tell Nathaniel and show Nathaniel just how much his heart would grow in the hope and the faith that can only come from the goodness, the gospel of Jesus. Jesus answered Nathaniel, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you will see greater things than these. Jesus tells Nathaniel that he will see wonderful things. He will see big things. He will be spurred. He will spur Nathaniel on in understanding what does it mean to have your life and your heart transformed into the image of the Son of Man. What does it look like when the gospel impacts your life and transforms your heart? The gospel of hope transforms a hard heart to a living heart. The hope of Christ and the wonder of his grace gives us freedom to dream, freedom to be curious about the world, freedom to be hopeful, to be hopeful that that gospel of Jesus can change anyone. And I want you to know that the gospel can change you regardless of your baggage. The gospel can change you regardless of your past. Regardless of the hurts that you walk through, regardless of the hurts that you've caused or been, been just piled on you, regardless of your loss, there's a new creation. You can enter into this new creation through the transformation of Jesus in your heart. I want to take 
and look quickly at a person that maybe you've kind of skimmed by in Scripture. It's only five sentences in the Old Testament. And the reason I say you probably skimmed over it is because it's stuck in the middle of the genealogies, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. We're introduced to this man named Jabez. Uh, he's a descendant of Jacob, of Israel, of, of, of Judah, of David. We don't know his father's name. We don't know his mother's name. But we do know that his brothers were less honorable. First Chronicles chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez. And you're thinking, that's a pretty cool name. Saying, because I bore him in pain. How many of you were named after your mother's bad experience? <laughs> so he's named after his mom's bad experience with his birth, and apparently she was the kind of person that would build a monument, stack up a reminder of her disappointment with the lives of her children. It was not a noble or a strong family name, but it was a reminder. Every time... Every time he was called for dinner, hey, pain, <laughs> come on in. Called by his friends. Anytime that his name was used, and it was a reminder that you caused your mother pain. And then some of you are like, I know how that feels. You know the line, right? You know that line. When you don't clean, <laughs> do you know how much pain you caused? You know how long I was in labor with you? Do you know the pain you caused me? The family, the family with a bitter spirit is the one that looks backwards, only looking to the pain. You know the kind. You know the kind. They never get ahead. And they're the kind that you never ask how they're doing because you get the whole medical rundown every time you ask, right? His family likely spoke of this self-fulfilling ruin, looking for the worst to happen, knowing that they had bad in the past and they're going to have bad in the present and they will have bad most certainly in the future, thinking that their past will bring them more pain, that their damage and loss will fill their days. One day, though we're not sure why, Jabez determined that he wasn't going to live that way anymore. So Jabez called upon the God of Israel. He spoke a prayer saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. Jabez didn't want the hurt of his past, the past of his family to rob him of his future. So many of those, so many of those that we know, that you know, live in a world where they can't see the past their pain. They can't see past their current disappointments. And they live their life. They live the life of their parents 
and their parents before them. But Jabez, he asked God to free him and to be with him. And we are told that God granted his request. And God granted what he asked. He said, free me from my name. Free me from my darkness. Free me from my past. Free me from a life that doesn't have hope. And how did he know? How did Jabez know that is what he was supposed to ask from God? Well, it's because he knew that he was from the tribe of Judah. He knew that, that the blessing was that Judah would be a lion and that he'd be royal and that he'd rule. All nations would bow to Judah and they would walk in victory. Jabez saw that there was a heritage that he could claim. And by virtue of faith, he chose to cry out to the only one that could change it. The only one that could make that blessing absolutely true. And you know what? He was freed by a loving God who hears and who responds. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and behold, the new has come. You can become curious once more. Jesus gave his followers a reason to ask why. Why does it have to be that way? Why do I think that way? Why not? Why can't we dream? Why can't we do better things? Why can't we change? What if it was different? What if things were better? And Jesus ignited in the hearts of those who followed him a sense of awe and a sense of wonder. And do you know what it did? It broke them free from their chains. Maybe that's what you need today. To let the power of the gospel, let the power of the gospel never let you settle. Never let you settle into a place that is without hope, that is without possibility. I don't believe that we should be satisfied in a life that does not see the wonder of Jesus. I don't believe that we were created to live in a life that's held down by chains of fear, guilt, and pain. We can believe again. We can hope again. We can trust and we can be curious. If you cultivate curiosity long enough, hope will flourish. And when hope flourishes, cynicism doesn't stand a chance. Now, if you're wondering how my story turned out, obviously I didn't quit, right? And it's because I had people who loved me who said, don't look at your current situation and know that God called you to something that was greater than your present trouble. Guys, I have an amazing wife that on those moments where I feel down and discouraged, she will point me to the hope that we have in Jesus. Guess what? 
every now and then I get the opportunity to do that with her. Don't let your present baggage destroy your future. Look to the horizon and hope. Because when hope abounds, oh, life just begins.